Welcome to another Green and Gold Rugby podcast uh, sponsored by strike.com.au. Go there to get your cradle for your iPhone to put in your car. Um, use Green and Gold Rugby as the safe word, get a discount. So anyway, look, I've been pretty much deserted by all my regulars here uh, on uh, the podcast. It's uh, Logues is playing touch rugby. I've got uh, Timsey is uh, sick with tonsillitis. Hugh Cavill's stuck at work. Um, but Manfully taking up uh, their positions here today, I guess I should say, is a former Wallaby, uh, Ben Darwin. Mate, how are you? I'm very well, Matt. Thank you. I'll probably accumulatively take up their positions as well and have the weight. So. <laughs> I don't know, mate. Here, I'm looking at your photo here on Skype. You're looking pretty trim, or is the, is the uh, hoodie covering a bit? That's Photoshop. It's Photoshop. <laughs> Alrighty. But, mate, look... Um, what are you up to? So talk us through, give us a bit of a potted history. You had a few kind of coaching and, and positions and stuff and, and then kind of leading up into what we're going to talk about, which is an absolutely fascinating venture you're getting into. But what's happened on the lead up to that? So last time I spoke to you guys, I think I was working with the Melbourne Rebels. Yeah. Um, I was there for two years as the analyst and then I uh, got a call to go over to Suntory. Um, so I coached over there um, last season, which was a Really interesting experience, and uh, they're a pretty special team. We, we nothing to do with me, but we managed to get through the whole season winning every game, so that was pretty, wow. pretty lucky. Yeah. Uh, just got a lot to do with George Smith and Frida Priya. Um, <laughs> and then uh, after that, um, I've come home, and uh, I've got two little boys now, yeah. and so I um, decided I might try to settle down and, and do something where I don't keep moving countries or moving places. So, yeah, uh, yeah I've started a business doing um, uh, uh, recruitment analytics for sport. Yeah. So, mate, just before we move on to that, and because um, hopefully we're going to take a bit of time on that because it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so, and who who was the head coach there at Suntory at the time? Um, a guy called Okubo. So, Eddie Jones is still obviously involved in Suntory, but he's now the national head coach. So, he'd moved on and up, and um, the gentleman who was the forwards coach uh, then took over as the, as the head coach. Yeah. But... Um, just a lot of uh, – we had Danny Rousseau there before he moved to Toulon, um, Tussi Pissi, and I think about 13 of the of the national side involved there. So it was a pretty um, pretty special group. Wow. So, and, and what was any – what was your kind of – I mean, having gone from the Rebels to having gone there, what was the kind of major major differences or culture shocks that you came across? Oh, I'd coached in Japan before, so I knew the, the cultural aspect. But I think um, – you know, Suntory are a real standard bearer over there. And yeah. I, I think what surprised me the most was there was times when we probably could have been beaten over that, you know, I think it was 23 games or something like that straight. But in Japan, teams can get intimidated by the aura of a team. And mm-hmm. uh, there was certainly a few times we got out of jail. Um, and the and the team actually has this tradition where they pretty much lose every preseason game, every trial. And then, um, as soon as the, as soon as it comes on for the uh, for the contested games, no problems. We're confident we win. So yeah. it's a pretty confident group, particularly for a, a group of Japanese. But um, the impact of Georgie too over over those guys. A lot of guys go to Japan 
um, maybe minority guys like that, and not, they're not that interested. Georgie's very interested in all the players. Georgie Grigan was the same when he was a Suntory, and there was times it didn't matter that he couldn't speak Japanese. He would just stop the group and say, right, this is not good enough. We'll fix it. And they just listened to him, and um, and off they go. And, uh, you know, you could see it by the SIP rugby this year. I knew he was going to go pretty well, but... Um, He's such a dominant ball carrier over there. That's the part of his game that's really improved, actually. All right. So do you think um, it's likely, I mean, having seen him in action, what, coaching maybe beckons for him, do you reckon? He does really well when when he's the one out there leading it. Um, right. I think that's a real point of difference with coaching is you actually have to sit in the grandstand and not be able to control it, which is the hard part. I think, uh, I, I think if he was to coach, and I've had the discussion with him a little bit, so I'll let him answer it more, but... I think he probably works better individually, working with one-on-one. Really good. Did a lot of coaching over there with the breakdown. Yeah. Um, and and those guys, you know, when you've got a good team, the coaches are really the players. Um, yeah. And we had some outstanding ones there. So Georgie, Georgie, I think, will go down that path, but more probably from a skill perspective, like an individual skill. Mm. I think that's where he could really help guys. And um, uh, a lot of the guys, I think he probably did a lot of coaching at the Brumbies this year. I think he helped a lot of their guys through the season. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, they, they, yeah, I mean, the Brumbies had an amazing amount of coaching talent bumping around there by the end. Um, so, mate, look, tell me a bit about this, what's brought you back, because uh, you were telling me a bit before, and it's, I mean, it, it's absolutely, it's a fascinating idea that, um, now, you're, you're going to correct me, but just to let people know, it's a bit like a, if you've seen or, or read Moneyball, in my opinion, it's a little bit like this in that you've really applied um, some really interesting kind of thinking um, to sport to you know start to make sense of uh, what we see uh, week in week out season in season out. So give me an idea. What's 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 the idea behind it? What, what's it called? First, has it, has it got a name? Uh, the company is called Gain Line. Mm-hmm. Um, Gain is in getting over the advantage line. Um, uh, I, I would the best way to describe it is I call it macro analytics. So looking at the big uh, the big numbers, not not like uh, how many tackles does someone make, more like. Um, experience and um, uh, what, what we do measure is relationships. So if we were to look at a team like um, like the British Lions, mm. it's a, there's a lot of talent out there in that group. Um, if you were to give it a number, you might say that that team's worth $40 million, million dollars, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the actual contracts value of those players. However, you know, they they if you just simply looked at the talent, they actually should, shouldn't struggle to beat... Um, any team, because it's pretty much the most complete side put together in the world. The reason they do sometimes struggle or, or don't win the series against um, Australia, Ireland, Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand, is because they don't know each other as well um, as other guys. So they take a four four teams, bring them together, and it's that lack of prior relationships that makes it difficult. So right. what I've started to do is just to start measure those relationships. If you look at a team like the Crusaders those guys do have spent an enormous amount of time together because they bring them into the Crusaders young or they, um, you know, they contract them straight out of high school or they come out of the, um, the Canterbury team. They spend a huge amount of time together and so they all know each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Highlanders this year, they had a pretty good group. They decided to bring in uh, four or five players, Allison, Nonu, Brad Thorne. And uh, this has got nothing to do with the culture of the peak. The guys just simply... Um, you know, you bring in a bunch of uh, leaders mm-hmm. and, they, you know, those guys got a lot of experience. They had a lot of caps. The Highlanders probably had more caps than any other team in the comp this year, but it muddies the water for the guys mm-hmm. and um, they're disjointed. And you could see that particularly it impacts on your defence um, yep. in, in league 
and uh, and union, um, it impacts on your defence, and so you end up um, uh, uh, conceding far too many points over the season. So um, it's it's really just getting an understanding of how that experience and the, how your recruitment um, impacts on things. One of the interesting things that come out of it is if you bring someone who's got a lot of experience at another club, sometimes that can actually be worse off than signing a young player who hasn't been anywhere else because uh, that player, if they've been at another club like um, Havana when he jumped from the Bulls to the Stormers, mm-hmm. he's got a set of habits, he's got a set of prior relationships and um, you know his performances went down over those couple of years after he came to the side because he didn't know the guys inside and outside of him and it just took a bit of time. Um, and it's just getting a, a, a measurement. It's a measure of relationships. Um, the players, uh, things like uh, brothers, um, if you've got a bunch of brothers like the Burgess brothers at South Sydney or the White, Lo- uh, the White Locks or the Crusaders, those guys are going to know each other better than, than four players who don't know one another, haven't played together before. Yeah. So sometimes if you, if you um, any relationships you've got even from prior teams can impact on a team's performance in a positive way. Or, um, or if you've got too many players who don't know each other, it takes, it takes a longer amount of time to, to get to know one another and to be successful. Wow. So that's amazing. So, um, and I guess that kind of explains things like the bulls, um, like uh, the cheaters, and, and things like that. These again, these these are teams. Like for example, with the cheaters, you, you might think there's a fair few no names in there, but if, I mean, if you look at it, have they got a lot of kind of relationships that, that spread back? Well, uh, you know, they're all from a lot of them from the same high school. Um, they then played uh, Curry Cup with each other and Vodacom Cup. Um, the interesting thing with the Cheetahs is they actually don't have a lot of experience as a group. There's not a lot of test players in there. Mm. However, they've been together for that uh, three-year period. is really important, I think. They've been together for three years. Um, they probably have, um, you know, maybe uh, 80 years' experience together, accumulatively, mm. but um, nowhere near as much as a Highlanders or even, a, even Rebels in our first year, but yet they were able to actually make the finals. So... Mm. Sometimes not having the previous experience anywhere else and just being together as a group um, can make you more successful than a team with a lot of test caps, a lot of success, um, even at other teams. It's just when you mix the mix the colours together of different sides, um, that can create problems. And, and that's why the Barbarians, is, is for me, is just doesn't work anymore because they don't, um, you know, they don't know each other. They haven't got any experience, and they're playing against test teams that have um, huge amounts of time together. Wow. So. When you and so what you guys have done there, have you put together like uh, you've had a look at all this, and I guess you've had to balance out and and go through and say, well, you know, so many um, years experience overall versus a smaller amount of experience, but in the one place, or you know, a relationship like a brother or a high school or whatever else. And have you guys like put some together, some sort of proprietary algorithm or something that kind of sorts through all that? Um, yeah, there's certain certain numbers that I can that I can get out of it and say, well, okay, well, I can pretty much you can pretty much predict this team's going to be more successful than other other teams. An interesting one was the Highlanders this this season were nine dollars, I think, to win the title because people just looked at them as an accumulation of individuals and not said, hey, well, these guys haven't actually played very much together. There's a lot of guys who from being elsewhere. The one with that I found interesting was the the backline of the Highlanders had more experience at the Hurricanes than they do. Um, as the Highlanders, so that's a good thing because the guys do know one another. But you mix it up too much and you create those problems. Uh, the the thing that is interesting is that is that sometimes um, a team that is like that type of group, the Highlanders, is if you bring in people with prior habits uh, from other clubs, good or bad, 
um, you get into getting too many voices mm-hmm. and you too many voices. And we certainly found that as a struggle in the Rebels in that first year is we just had so many senior players, a lot of voices saying, you know, we need to do this, we need to do this, and you end up having lots of helpful discussions, but it takes a lot of time and, you know, it took it took us a while to actually start to mould together. Yeah. Um, whereas a team like the Cheetahs is a, is a bunch of kids. They're a very young side. They've only been together three years, but they haven't been anywhere else. And that's the thing that's probably surprised me the most is that young young guys together for two or three years can be more successful than a very, very experienced group if they're, if they don't know each other particularly well or if they're kind of just um, – they've had few people come into the team that kind of muddies the water in terms of their tactics and policies. Yeah, I mean, I think you were saying that if maybe at the Rebels you guys had just picked up the Aussie under-21s three years ago, then who knows where you might be now, eh? Well, it's that, that's what the Cheetahs looks like, yeah. basically. That's what, their, that's what their group is. However, I think with the Rebels, what we wanted to do, and I certainly was, was a part of this, is we wanted to be successful straight from the outset. And, and, you know, draw people to rugby in Melbourne, not be, you know, losing by, you know, a, a big sort of spate of points. I think the Kings surprised quite a number of people. Yeah. Um, and that group's actually, you know, they're, they're not signed from a whole bunch of other places. Um, uh, the interesting thing actually was this year is the Lions, people could take in Africa who they wanted from the Lions and the Bulls hardly took anyone. The Cheetahs hardly took anyone, but the Stormers and the Sharks took a whole bunch of them. And they probably fell away. I'm not saying that's there on this specific reason, but yeah. um, you know, again, you bring guys in, and, and one thing I've been looking at is is if you're if you want to sign a player from another club, whether it's be league union or AFL, that player is only of that value at that moment with those players they play with. Mm-hmm. If you look at Buddy Franklin, and because because I'm looking at it in other sports, you look at Buddy Franklin at Hawthorne, he is of that value because the guys around him know how to work with him and and. You know he's very very successful within that side. Mm. If he changes teams, he may not. It may not work. Yeah. Um, Warwick Kappa, when he changed from the Swans to the <laughs> Brisbane Bears, it was uh, it didn't go particularly well. Um, wow. uh, it's sometimes it's down to the, sometimes it's going to be down to the individual, and they're going to work very hard and they're going to make it happen. But um, Habano, when he went from the Bulls to the Stormers, his first two years, everyone was asking what was wrong with him. Um, and there was actually nothing wrong. It's just he just didn't know the guys he played with as he had when he played at the Bulls. So he wasn't of the value maybe that the Stormers paid for him um, for two years. Mm-hmm. And so and then he went off to Toulon, I think it is. And that's why, you know, Toulon is it's a 30 to $35 million team, but I still think the Crusaders would belt them. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you know, <laughs> it's probably only worth $5 million. I don't know what their, their wages are, but it would be a lot It would be a lot less than, the, uh, than Toulon. And, and what about um, – do does position play any kind of um, role in this as well? Like, are there more important positions than others to have stability in or not? Or uh, how does that work? I think within each team, there's there's guys who, obviously three being the most important, but <laughs> there's guys there's guys who have decisions and there's action. You know, there's actions of decision making. I think decision making is a really important one. And I think if you're decision makers, which will be, it's going to depend around the sport. Um, you know, with AFL, it's down the middle. With rugby league, it's sort of like your hookers, um, less so maybe the five-eight fullback. Um, if you have consistency, they might call it a spine. If you have consistency in those areas, mm-hmm. I think that can be really important to your, to particularly we've we've found that with attack. Yeah. Um, I'm actually yet to really decide what the spine is in a rugby team, but it'd be obviously there'll be nine and ten and. You know, is it 13? Is it 15? Is it is it the jumping caller? So you can't give it a specific number because of the lineouts as a hooker. 
Um, uh, so there's guys who, who are going to need a certain skill set, but um, it's really the, the, the on-the-field leaders. So that may change. Some, some clubs, their number eight, may be calling line-outs and make all the decisions in terms of how they play. So, but if you've got consistency around those decision-makers, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of defence, if you've just got, you've just got to uh, be together as a group, um, for a long period of time, and if you've been together, then you can really trust your defence. Um, you know, there's always going to be uh, examples where that doesn't necessarily occur, but generally that sort of overarchs um, uh, uh, years of rugby, and, um, and the sort of the more I look into it, the more I, I kind of see how um, you can kind of see results coming, um, particularly when teams make too many changes. You'll have individually brilliant performances, but sometimes... Um, the actual outcome is bad because that player may be brilliant, but they're actually also out of position. A lot of the time, people might not see that. Mm. And I mean, I think just going back, I mean, you started the top of this just talking about the Lions, for example, but there was a great example in there, wasn't there, with uh, Gatlin in the third test, um, leaving out O'Driscoll. And I think you were saying, well, if you think about it from this perspective, um, you know, with a team that was so dominated by Welsh, each time you added another Welshman, it just made more and more sense, right? Yeah, well, if you if you just think about the the guys who play together and they play in combination, the best way if if you, the the idea of the lines is to have four different countries and the best of those clubs. However, if you actually look at it from the perspective of prior experience together, the best way to build a lines team would be say right, let's build let's take one of our teams and just add in a couple of individually skilled players who are out of decision making positions. Yeah. Um, uh, now for the third test. He basically went back to the Welsh team. He went back to nine, um, uh, I think it was nine English and 11 Welsh and no Scots, I think a couple of Irish. So there was all this uproar around O'Driscoll, but realistically he didn't have the, uh, he hadn't worked together as much as the Welsh centres had worked together. Mm. So it's just kind of like, um, you know, individual skill sometimes can be can be overridden by uh, combination time and, um, and relationships. So, mate, now, so as I understand it, with Gainline, You've not just looked at um, union. You're also what looking at is it league and AFL as well? League, AFL, and um, uh, football. So soccer. Okay. All right. Okay. So um, uh, you know the the good thing with that is that you actually know the monetary value of the teams in the, in soccer. So you can actually say, well, you know, this team's worth more than this. Um, uh, what I've come across is, for example, Man United. Their average age they contract is 19 of their guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, um, whereas Manchester City, their average age is 24. Yep. Now, signing a 24-year-old footballer is very, very expensive because you've got transfer fees and things like that. Um, and Manchester City, I think, lost $200 million last year. So they haven't been successful as Man United. Um, Ferguson talks a lot about those guys spending time together. You know, he actually brings a lot of them when they're 14 and 15. He doesn't sign too many players over the age of 23 to 25 because he doesn't want to muddy the water of the group. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's anything really that's an invasive sport, and and there's been a lot of discussions around Moneyball, around um, you know, uh, that applies very well to a sport like cricket or a sport like um, baseball, where it's not really a team game; it's an individual skill versus an individual skill. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, I'm really measuring um, uh, prior relationships of players and how that's worked. Um, uh, you look at a, some league teams over the years, like St George; they won 11 years straight, and you actually get to this point where it gets harder and harder to beat that group. Um, Queensland Rugby League lasted of 10 years um, because people try to 
to beat them by changing the players. Let's bring someone else in that'll solve the problem, and you end up having the same problem because yeah, you know, because um, the guys you're up against, uh, particularly with Queensland, with their guys like Cooper Cronk and stuff, they've just been there the whole time, and they um they work together. They all know each other so well, and and you know, looking at those successful teams, all those guys talk about how they know each other so well and how they're really tight. And um, uh, you know, a lot of the things too is you sign a player from another club, he's going to be happy to leave again. Whereas if you build a player yourself and they've been together for 10 years, they really don't want to leave. So yeah. it's, um, it's easier to hold on to you guys there too. Yeah, I mean, the, the more you talk about it, the more it makes sense. How So with the business game line, how, how's it, I mean, how do you see yourself working with, you know, your customers? So your customers are going to be the teams, like the coaches when they're recruiting. I mean, how, how's that, you know, how's your relationship going to play out with those guys? What, what actually happens? The, the, the key to it was actually it all it all kind of happened by accident because um, getting uh, all the information on players around the world and um, and looking at when they're coming off contract because mm-hmm. um, there actually isn't anywhere um, central to do that. So I started just building some data with some guys and then we just organised it by teams and then we also looked at the history of each of those players and then the more we did it, the more we could see how teams were formed together and um, you look at a team that's been winning and say, well, okay, that group has a certain way, way about it, whereas um, other teams that aren't winning, you could see they haven't all necessarily been from the same place. So we kind of attached some algorithms to it and then um, uh, just started to measure it across, across the board and um, lots of Excel documents and um, that's how it came about. But to answer your question, there's a couple of different parts. One is um, maybe... Uh, making that those kind of things available to teams about an understanding of if you're a team you're if you're Toulon you want to buy a flanker say okay who are all the flankers coming off contract around the world and then you could provide that to them and then the other part is also talking to teams about how they recruit um, each competition has a different um, uh, level of uh, success or um, you know like for example the Viva Championship they haven't None of the teams in the English comp have actually won the Heineken Cup in quite a while, so you can look at why that might be happening. Or um, uh, there's obviously teams within AFL haven't done that well, and I, I don't. I said to someone the other day, I don't know anything about AFL whatsoever, but I just know I could tell you what a, a successful team looks like, and teams that don't go particularly well looks like. So yeah. um, that's that's another part of it. Okay. Wow. Um, and then the other way. The other, the more that we talk, the other way I think is that you know maybe some betting conglomerate's going to ha- come along and make you an offer you can't refuse because um, you, you, you've got to think that this has had. I mean, you know, if it if it works, um, you know, that, that's going to have a big impact on that as well, right? Yeah, it'd be nice. Um, those guys are pretty smart. I think what it does is is, for example, by the last round, you know, the Highlanders are a long odds to win games, so that makes you know. Um, it, it builds momentum, and 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 so I, I probably could give you a perspective around uh, how a team's going to go in a season. Mm-hmm. Um, but individual games, like home and away, one interesting stat I found the other day is that, uh, for example, in Super Rugby, um, statistically, uh, when New Zealand teams play each other, there's no such thing as a home advantage. There's just there's no there's no points differential whatsoever between New Zealand teams playing one another. Wow. In over there, because they just get so used to it. Whereas when Australian teams, there's definitely a home advantage. I think it's five points. Yeah. Uh, if you if you're playing at home, but um, yeah, it's uh, 
those kind of things, it's how much do they weight in in terms of the, whether a team's going to be successful or not. And mm-hmm. um, If I could, uh, I, I would tell you if I had a secret source to tell you who's going to win every game every week, but I can't <laughs> do that. But I sort of roughly say this team's going to do pretty well. So No, but for some of those longer odds though, right? So like you say, at the beginning of the season, um, there's a market for that. Um, obviously. Um, Alrighty, look, I mean, that's fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, good luck with that, mate. It's going to be, um, I have to keep up with you on that to see how that evolves because, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're onto something there. Um, if people have uh, listening to the podcast got any questions, um, you know, leave it on the uh, post or email them in and um, we'll pass them on to Ben or if you want to get in contact with him, then, then let us know. Um, but, mate, look, uh like I say, you're standing in for very admirably for um, the, the guys who usually do the podcast. So we've got a few things to talk about, if you don't mind, um, of just, just for a few minutes. Um, the most obvious one is that we've got a squad that's been announced for uh, for the trip away to South Africa. Um, it's uh, we uh, published it there on, on Green and Gold Rugby during the week. I mean, I guess just to uh, go through the main the headlines as far as what the changes are. You've got um, Ben Robinson coming in for Scott Co. Um, Dave Dennis is giving a shot. Um, Liam Gill uh, gets left out, and I think that's raised a few eyebrows. So what I'll do is I'll come to you in a minute, mate, and see if which ones of these you think make sense. Maybe from a relationship point of view, I don't know. Um, you've got the uh, Reds winger. Chris Fawai Saitia, he's coming in, but that's because Nick Cummins is injured. Uh, Jesse Mogg is also out with a shoulder. Um, Joe Tamani's coming into the back line for that, um, for, for him. Um, so probably some other names I'll just throw in that are of interest. Um, Bernard Foley is in that squad, um, so he'll be going with them. Um, Sidaleki Tamani is as well. Uh, obviously, he got a run out last time. But, mate... Um, and, Al- and Albert and I, I should say, he um, seems to be slipping under the radar, but he's in there as well. So if you look at those kind of key changes around Robbo coming back, Dave Dennis o- over Gill um, and the uh, Reds winger, uh, what are your thoughts on, on the logic of those? Well, I think it sounds to me also that any time there's a, there's a questionable, you know, selection, Linky seems to go back to a Reds player, but that's... That's not. I wouldn't have a great thing about that because he, he knows what he knows and he knows those guys well, and yeah. they've been the most successful team. Um, in terms of um, in terms of Robbo, I know that uh, Eddie Jones had a comment about about him um, a couple of months ago that he needed to that Robbo needed to get an understanding about what a work rate was because he didn't think he was doing much around the park. Right. I think he's had to really prove himself on that front. Scrummaging wise, um, there really isn't a big point of difference between um, CO, him, and even over at Tighthead, Alexander and Kepler. There's, no, there's none of those guys that are, are really, you know, making an outstanding um, case for themselves. Mm. Part of it, I think, is the new laws. I think they're not suiting Australia particularly well, yep. um, particularly on, uh, on Winger and Ball. All of them have experience with Maury. Um, my sort of the biggest concern is we're just having to rely on him so much at the moment that if we don't, um, if we don't start with him, then we're we're finding ourselves in trouble, particularly with tough injured. So yeah, and and mate, so what do you think? Just getting delving into a little bit of the detail there with the, the new scrum scrum laws. Is it are our guys just basically not big enough and strong enough to to have the wrestle um, and uh, hold the you know hold the shove when the hooker's uh, striking? Is 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 that what it is? Well, it's you know when it's your own ball, you want to hit and chase. And because of the stability needed, you you can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's a tight head's nightmare from my point of view because you really want to 
you want to dominate that hit, and particularly for the big guys, um, keep that pushing through. So it just becomes this seven versus eight. And we're not just talking, I mean, generally across rugby, that's what the guys are having trouble with, is the, the hookers having trouble striking. We saw quite a few times um, in those first two tests that Maury was kind of getting pincered mm-hmm. by the All Blacks, actually wasn't able to strike at the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because, you know, those guys, uh, Mialama and Hormer actually played when, when hookers used to strike, so they kind of had an understanding of, of how to do it, how to place pressure on blokes. Um, I think that, we haven't uh, probably had the adaptation that other teams have had. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the the uh, the New Zealanders are doing it best because um, if you looked at the way the Crusaders have particularly been scrummaging the last couple of years, they haven't been focused on it hit at all. They've basically been focusing on loading up during the um, the, during the post hit period, keeping their feet. They're not interested in moving their feet whatsoever on the contact, and really then piling the pressure on when the strike come in. So. It just really suits it suits the way New Zealand scrum, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably why they've now maybe gone ahead as the best scrum in the world because it's actually suited their post what I would call their post hit policies, because um, it really wasn't something they were particularly focused on, particularly on defensive scrums. They just the way they put pressure on the way they the way they scrummage works really well for them. Um, I I don't think we'll stay with these laws. I think we'll go back to. Um, something a little bit more hit orientated. I think the safety parts come through really nicely and I'd, I'd definitely be the first person to say we've got to keep it as safe as we can. Mm-hmm. But what's happening now is teams are going to learn to adapt to this policy better and better and better and it's going to make it harder and harder for attacking teams to win their own ball. Wow, okay. And why was it that, it, I mean, was that the case in the past or, or wasn't it? Um, so why was it that people seem to be able to hook a ball okay, you know, whatever it was 15 years ago? Um, well, because they because they had a hit, um, you know. The, if you look at the old games in the nineties, you know, blokes are taking a two two step hit in and and um, and really bashing each other. And so, if you get that part right when you're the attacking team, you can then win the strike because you're you're going forward into the strike. You can step forward. Mm-hmm. If you're, a, um, I haven't played hooker enough, but <laughs> at, at, at all actually, mm-hmm. if you're if you're stationary. Um, and you're not moving forward, it's extremely difficult to be able to win your own ball. Um, and you can see teams at the moment trying to almost create momentum in that half-inch hit, and they can't get that momentum. And so they're, they're just, um, you know, now the seven, the seven guys, and also now guys are much better at um, controlling their bodies and, um, you know, particularly core stability has really improved in the last of the 20 years. So guys are able to put that power back in to the opposition much more effectively. Mm-hmm. So just broadening it out a little bit, um, everyone's got an opinion at the moment as why the Wallabies have been struggling. Um, you know, what's yours? Um, if you took it from the perspective of it's not the Wallabies, it's just a team, mm-hmm. the All Blacks have come have really come to this point now where they're able, they're able to, to rotate guys in, maintain a large amount of experience in the side, and still be successful, mm-hmm. whereas it's not like they're rebuilding. They're just just rolling on. You know, they can still draw on these guys with a lot of experience, and it's a really silly number. But you just look at caps, and the All Blacks have got six. You know, when they played us the other day without Carter or McCaw, I think they were at six or seven, six or seven hundred caps without Mealamu. So they're they're really up around that eight hundred mark. Australia's around four hundred and stuff. Because sort of five hundred. So um, we some of this is a product of what's happened for us last couple of years with guys sort of heading overseas. We don't have that depth. And so, you know, we can see younger and younger group. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would actually say we're not in crisis. We're just in a we're just in a phase. Um, you know, we just don't have we don't have a lot of guys with uh, 100 caps to their names wandering around. Um, and so we've uh, Linky's just got to find out who the right guys are, which he's going about doing. He certainly did a terrific job of that at the Reds. Um, they really just uh, he was able to look at his list and hold on the right guys. He's just got to decide now who he wants, and then those guys have got to play together for two years, and then we if we win a World Cup, we keep chopping and changing. I think that's probably the 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 last time Australian rugby was in crisis from a winning perspective was during that '96 to '97 period where you know we had Greg Smith and they were they were just chopping and changing who the starting lineup was, mm. and they just couldn't work together. And you know you change your combinations all the time. Certainly, I know this from a front row point of view. It just takes time working right together. It took me two years to figure out how to bond properly on Jeremy Paul. So you've got to have the same guy next to you all the time, figure it out. So Linky's got to find out which is his best starting 15 and then keep that group together and then hopefully a group of 30 and not change it too much. And he's just deciding that now. So in that process of deciding, we're going to lose five games, six games, ten games, whatever it takes to find out who the right guys are. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's a good perspective. Actually, interestingly enough, I just had... Um, uh, he'll be in this podcast after we talk, but um, earlier on I recorded the uh, interview with uh, Rocky Elsom, and I guess the thing that he was saying that basically just accentuates what you're talking about is he's saying his opinion is that a lot of it is that we're not able to keep our best players on the paddock through conditioning um, and, uh, you know, and, and basically player welfare. Um, and I guess if his theory is right and that we're not up to speed like some of the other lead nations are and you're not getting those guys, keeping those top guys fit um, and able to play for long enough, then that's just going to exacerbate what you're talking about, right? Because, you know, f- take, for example, a Tatafu plotter now um, with all of his caps that's not in at the moment um, and a bunch of other players, who, you know, who've been out, like Kev Hall was out for the last couple of tests, these sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting uh, couple of things to put together. Um, the last thing I was going to say, because it's and it's because it's come through just as we were getting ready for this podcast, actually, um, it's come through that James O'Connor got refused entry onto the flight. Um, he was apparently this is I found, find this just as interesting. I understand that he was going to be going to Bali for a few days off because the team. Um, um, had had this week off, I think, um, and he was going to be going to Bali, but he turned up for the flight on Sunday morning so drunk that um, they actually kicked him out of Perth Airport. Um, this is just bizarre. It, it 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 just these things just keep happening <laughs> to, to, to to this guy, don't they? I mean, um, are you surprised by this, mate? Having spent some time at the Rebels, um, I, I tell you what, I reckon that if this. All this stuff, I reckon, is actually going to be good for him in the long term. Mm-hmm. I think it's he, he's a young guy who's been signed at 17. Um, you know, things have gone particularly well for him for a long period of time. As long as he just learns from this, you know, you, you have to you have to learn a fair amount of humility by being told, you know, your current team doesn't want you and no one else might want you. So mm-hmm. I just hope he he um, he. You know, I actually, in all my experience with him, I've got on very well. I think he's a he's a very nice young guy, but just the accumulation of his experiences so far in rugby have have got him into a certain mindset. Um, so, you know, like I said, I hope I hope it makes um, it, it it makes a sort of the coming of him into a into a better person through the experience. So, uh, mm. um, yeah, what what he's doing, and I can only um, I can only uh, 
I can only go by what I read in the paper. The one thing we know is we don't know what's really going on. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, it's amazing, you know, and, and there's, I'm sure, I mean, I've already seen it on Twitter, you know, there's going to be even more people, you know, clamoring for, oh, we don't need this guy now and he can take his ego and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing here is that I've got to say that over the last few games, I mean, he, I think he's he got caught out, um, I think, once or twice in the first All Blacks game in defence. But, I mean, I think since then he's proven, you, you can just see the skill that the guy's got, the natural talent. Um, I think he's been one of our more dangerous players still, um, just through raw talent in the last few games. And I think, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure we can, and to your point, people who now who are starting to build a sizable number of caps I'm not sure we can just th- throw a guy on a scrap heap like that. Um, so, yeah, geez, it really ups the ante. I made the joke on Twitter that um, it must be Dan Brown, who's actually his PR strat- strategist, the, the novelist must be, because um, and it's going to be a really surprising ending to this story that's going to shock the hell out of all of us. Um, because otherwise, at the moment, it just seems so... Uh, it's not so much that it's random, but just that it's almost constant, these things that keep popping up. So, anyway, let's, let's hope they can get that sorted out. Um, um, other than that, mate, I think that's that's about it for tonight. Um, f- with, with, with my discussion with you, um, great to talk to you. It's fascinating stuff. It sounds like I, I can't see you, but you're telling me that the office you're in there, it sounds like it's some sort of um, um, hub um, for WikiLeaks or something. You're surrounded by, by computers and whatnot. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a big, I love having multiple screens. Yeah. So I've got... Um, I think six computers in here and uh, probably about eight different screens or nine different screens going on. So my wife is not happy about the power bill whatsoever or the internet bill. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's some sort of um, hub for launching nuclear satellites. But it's not good when my, little, my son gets in here, who's, um, who's, who's two years of age and I think he's 18 kilos now. So it's really... <laughs> the prop crisis is over when my two boys grow up. <laughs> good one. All right, mate. Well, it's good. It's good to know we've got some coming. Um, all right, mate. Look, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, and we'll catch up again soon. Hopefully, and hear hear about how game line's going. Cheers. Thanks very much. Right there. Right there. Right. So I'm joined now by uh, former Wallaby and Wallaby skipper uh, Rocky Elson. Um, mate, how are you? Really good. Good. Um, now. You've been on a bit of a journey uh, since the TARS. Um, can you maybe just talk us through? You've kind of been a few places, different things have happened. What's, what's, the, what's the history? Uh, so I left the TARS in uh, July of 2012 to join uh, Japanese club Kobe. Mm-hmm. Before I um, left the TARS, I sustained a neuropraxia, which is um, a bit of an unusual uh, nerve injury where you... Um, you know, your nerve gets crushed and, and doesn't uh, work so well. Mm. And that caused a few complications at Kobe. So from there, I had about a nine-month disagreement with them mm-hmm. um, that eventually was uh, resolved. And um, a couple of weeks after that was resolved, I joined Toulon, which is um, a French team on the west end of the Côte d'Azur, which has um, a few other guys there like Carl Heyman and Matt Giddo and I think Drew Mitchell's there now. Yeah. Um, so I... Uh, Started with them uh, earlier this year and uh, went through to the end of the season with them and left them soon after uh, the end of the season. And did you did you did you manage to get onto the uh, uh, did you manage to play much uh, when you were with Toulon there? Yeah, so I had um, 
uh, I had uh, I joined and I played the um, the last game of the regular season. So that's probably not very much, but um, <laughs> I played the last game of the regular season and then the the semi final of the um, top fourteen. All right, because they did pretty well last year, right? Yeah, well, they won the Heineken Cup, and yeah. then um, they were really big favourites to win the top fourteen, but it didn't work out. They mm-hmm. just made a pretty informed cast team. Mm-hmm. And um, how was it there? I mean, you played it and trained at a few pretty good clubs in your time. What was it like playing? Because I mean, geez, that's pretty much like the All Stars there, right? Yeah, it was. Um, it was really good there. There was a lot of good people there from. Um, you know the the osteo that they've got there to, you know the strength and conditioning guys um, and and the other players. It, it was really good. It was good for me because I wasn't long out of surgery when I arrived, um, and it uh, it helped because I got a lot better a lot, um, quickly, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, it was fun playing the, in the. Um, in a few of the matches, but it was uh, certainly an experience. I don't think I've ever been to a town that's more passionate about their team than Toulon. Yeah. And is that something, I mean, is that, has it always been that way? I don't know, you know, the history of it, or is it just because you've now got a guy there who's brought in, I mean, so many amazing names? Uh, no, it's always been that way. Rugby, as far as I know, rugby's yeah. really has been really strong there, and it's it's a bit the same with other towns in the south of France. You know, when they're a rugby town as opposed to a football town, mm. they're very passionate. They, they're just at a slightly higher level in Toulon. Okay, and uh, so was there anyone there that you kind of hung out with or got to know from, from a player's perspective um, a little bit more? Yeah, well, I got to know all of them. Obviously, yeah. the. Uh, spend a little bit of time there but um, as a group they were really good and I think as much as they get the um, reputation for being like kind of the all-star teams yeah. the boys extremely hard and um, that's why they're successful you know and you can see that in the games they're the hardest working team in Europe and that's why they want it okay and and so mate now um, what's what's the latest for you now as far as kind of where you are club wise um, so I uh, left Toulon after the season. I had um, uh, with with the injury that I had, which is that um, uh, neuropraxia. I um, you get a lot of atrophy with that, which mm-hmm. is basically where the muscle um, wastes away. And um, I have uh, got significant improvement over the past five or six weeks, mm-hmm. which is where the muscle bulks up. So because it is, um, uh, it's an unusual injury and I don't really want to muck with it. I am just making that, uh, speeding up that recovery while it's going well. Uh-huh. And um, then after that goes, uh, gets back to, I'll be um, uh, looking to play again after that. Okay. And are you, you kind of hanging out down there at, in the south of France still? Yeah. And how are you, how yeah, you, how are you finding it down there is uh, the culture and things like that? Uh, it's there's good and bad things. It is really nice for all the reasons that you um, you're aware of. You know, it's a beautiful place, and the um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 good and bad. But uh, there's certainly a lot of good down here in the south of France. It's obviously a beautiful uh, place this time of year. Um, it is. There's definitely a different culture around um, work, but mm-hmm. um, right here where I am now in Narbonne, it's um, uh, it's a really good place to train and um, and get better. Uh-huh. And so, you, you, are you um, kind of hanging out and training with the the team in Narbonne at the moment? I, I don't train with the team, but I okay. train here. Oh, okay, cool. 
Um, so, mate, look, I guess one of the questions everyone's thinking about and discussing endlessly here in Australia at the moment is, you know, what's going on with the Wallabies? Um, everyone's got a theory for why they're not or haven't been performing so well the last few games. Um, is there anything from what you've seen or people you're talking to? Have you got a, have you got a viewpoint like the rest of us do on what's going on there? Yeah, I think that uh, you can never put it down to one particular thing mm. um, because, you know, it's a combination of so many things. But f- from my point of view, I feel like what you need to be able to do is increase the chances of Australia playing well mm. and, and beating the All Blacks. Um, so I know we obviously had trouble against South Africa as well, but essentially that's the goal of Australian rugby is to um, win most of the time in New Zealand. So in order to do that, um, we need to have our best players out on the field. And, you know, I could go on about this a little bit, but basically um, I think a large part of it comes down to the past five years have been very stagnant as far as player physical preparation and um, uh, the performance program. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like uh, Link is wearing that now. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, he's feeling the effects of it because... You know, it's, uh, it doesn't get too much press, but every year it's the same. You know, you have uh, half a dozen or more top-line players that aren't available. Mm-hmm. And if you have that, that also means that there's um, there must be other players that are underprepared in that group if you have that many players out all the time. Of your top-line players, of course, there are others out as well. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to be um, consistent successful when you have enormous player depth and I think what you see for us is we've got less depth than New Zealand and um, South Africa and um, a higher injury rate and I I would say um, a a far inferior performance program which is a really big part of us not doing as well as we would like to against New Zealand not just this year but in previous years and I think when you look at that as an issue it's very hard for an administrator to um, understand the um, importance of that mm-hmm. because um, it's it's not clear. Even mm. if you have two experts in that area, it's not it's not a it's not an exact science. Yeah. But uh, it's a really big part of the reason why the guys are under the pump at the moment, and and it it's not a quick fix either. It'll take time to turn that around if they choose to do it, but they absolutely need to because nobody wants to see the boys doing it as tough as they have been. So that's really interesting. I mean, can you just give, I mean, like you said there, it's uh, no one's got the perfect answer for that. But I guess you must have some examples maybe in your mind that makes you think that that's the case. Like, you know, you've played now with a lot of these guys who've been in these different systems. Can you give me maybe one or two examples of, you know, what other people are doing or the sorts of things or the resources or the, the regimes or whatever it is that they do that's different to what we do? Well, I might have worded that uh, incorrectly. It's not that it doesn't need to be perfect, but I mean, people will give you different opinions. Yeah. You know, people from around the game will give you different opinions on what they should and shouldn't be doing. But from my point of view, it's pretty clear that this is at the heart of it, is not having your best players available or in the best shape that they can be. For example, it's it's the, um, the, the program as a whole. 
you know, so you can't label it on one person as one person's fault, uh -huh. but it needs to be um, a collection of the best people you can possibly pull together um, as far as strength and conditioning, performance, and every aspect of their physical development because we know we have less players uh -huh. um, to choose from. And when you look, if you compared our program to that of, say, um, the All Blacks or the English uh, Rugby Union, we are significantly understaffed there, which is not the end of the world. We can get by with less guys, but we, there is a minimum that you need, and you need to have the absolute best that we have in Australia before what is the pinnacle or what should be the pinnacle um, rugby uh, program in the country, which is the Wallabies. Okay. And, and we do have excellent people in Australia, by the way, like... Um, you know, there's a lot of really, really uh, clever people in Australia um, in that space. We just got to get them on board. Yeah. Okay. And so when you, you know, having played all those tests against guys like, you know, let's let's talk about the All Blacks. You said they're obviously our target, um, um, which makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, it looks like they're noticeably fitter. Is that possible? I mean, and and how do they do that at a national level when at the end of the day they got to play Super Rugby like we do? So how do they, you know, if they are that much fitter as a bunch, how does that come about? Well, there's also the appearance of looking fitter because you're um, more effective in what you do and yeah. tactics can help you appear fitter. But I think that um, a, a big uh, a big element to the, the reason why they um, appear to or are able to field virtually the same guys you know, week in, week out, or a large portion of them and, and have the most experienced New, New Zealand team on the field yeah at least for the past three years have had that a, a fair bit, is um, that they control it all centrally. As far as I can gather, they do have a pretty good grip on what uh, goes on in the provinces because uh, if you can have a program for the All Blacks if you like, but if that's not getting supported at, at the um, uh, provincial level, then you lose an enormous part of the, um, the year. Yeah. And it's important to have that control over it. And like I said, if you get good people, and Australia does have good people in there at the moment, the Wallabies do, but they need to be supported um, uh, by other staff, say in the Wallabies, but also in the um, in the provinces by not necessarily doing exactly what the Wallabies want, but yeah. having uh, the same the same kind of um, principles as in relation to what's going to be the best for the player and what's going to get the most out of them. Mm. And mate, so... And as somebody who's never um, been in an international training squad to someone who has, um, when it gets to that stage, do you guys, so when you, you know, join the Go to a Wallabies camp, uh, my understanding was that at that point, you're not actually working on base fitness. It's kind of like it's, you know, the, the, the thing, theory is that's kind of too late. You should have had that, um, you know, in, in the rest of like the super rugby season. Is that true? Is there anything you can do? by the time you get to those sort of international camps when, you know, you maybe you have three weeks together or something like that? Or is it all just focused on, you know, getting the patterns right um, and, and getting, you know, your sort of your combinations right? Well, it's certainly not a quick fix. And when you have, um, when you get in a test week, it's about the rugby, mm. you know, because, you know, you hear stories of players not being able to walk properly, but then they get out and play, which which happens. You know, they, they, you're dealing with a lot of issues, so it's not perfect. But what you do want is a combination of um, weeks and weeks and days and days and sessions of correct practice and things that help so that when you get to those instances where you can focus on the rugby, you have that preparation behind you and you want as many of those as possible. So, 
you know, the difference between a really good program um, and a program that doesn't function well is the number of times you do things that help you perform well. And they get disrupted all the time, which is uh, unavoidable, but it is the, um, it's the collection of all those times you've actually uh, improved yourself physically that add up. And I think that's, that's what I'm getting at with, uh, you know, with Link. I mean, he's, he's wearing the effects of us having um, very few of those days okay. in the past you know, five, six years. All right, mate. And so one last question there, and it's, I guess it's around the Wallabies. As a back rower yourself, um, one of the things that I think a lot of people are talking about is, you know, obviously back row makeup with the Wallabies. Um, now, with the squad that's going away to South Africa, um, Link's just taking one fetcher in, in, in Michael Hooper, and actually Liam Gill's been left behind. Dave Dennis has made the trip instead. Have you got some sort of insight into that as to why Link would be making that sort of choice? I mean, you know, going to the World Cup last year, a lot of supporters were wanging on about how we only had one fetcher and David Pocock, and when he got injured, it kind of that where it left us. Um, have you got any kind of thoughts on what Link might be thinking in that balance? Well, you can. I could speculate about it, but I mean, Link's inside the team. There, sure. um, knows there's a lot of factors that could influence that decision. So, he would have more of that information than I would. Yeah, but feel free to speculate, though, mate. <laughs> that's where the, that's where the rest of us are. I'm just talking about from a tactical point of view. What sort of what do you you know? If someone's going to make that decision, only taking one fetcher, what what what's making you think he's why is he doing that? Well, so he, they're going to South Africa to play one game. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you need one at a time. <laughs> yeah, okay. You throw the dice. What's that? You just throw the di- you got to throw the dice, I guess, is what you're saying. Well, I mean, if he gets injured there, then, you know, they can always get someone over, but yeah. generally they only play with one fetcher in each team, so okay. um, they've got that, I guess. All right, mate. Well, look, th- I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you. Um, yeah, no problem. And uh, so what's what's the rest of your day hold there in the south of France? Uh, well, I'll probably get um, some uh, some training done and um, punch out a bit of work. Okay. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, have a good one. Thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you. All right. Cheers. Right there. Right there. So that's the podcast for tonight. Hopefully you all enjoyed it, uh, having a couple of ex-Wallabies on to talk about some fascinating stuff, bit of a double barrel there, I thought. Uh, I mentioned during the week that we had a jaw-dropping guest coming on. He wasn't tonight yet, actually. He is hopefully coming on this weekend. So it should all be happening still for next week. Uh, So keep your eye out for that. Otherwise, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll see you next time. Seven left! 